You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett, coming to you, as always, from the oppressively hot and humid climes of Western Japan, here on the 16th day of July, 2012. Thank you once again for tuning in for this podcast, and I'd like to remind everyone to visit CorbettReport.com for previous episodes of this podcast, as well as my articles, interviews, videos, and other media that I've created over the past five years. Now, on the note of CorbettReport.com, I'm sure many of you will have noticed last week that the site was down for two days. It seems that basically we uh, we collectively managed to melt down the server. Uh, that's right. For those who were paying attention a couple of years ago, you'll remember that EuroVPS.com donated a server to the Corbett Report. And uh, it was a dedicated server that we were using to host the website completely for free. So I'm extremely, extremely grateful for their, uh, their help in that. But it seems that uh, collectively we were able to basically overwhelm the server, which I think was on its last legs anyway, and uh, kind of gave up the ghost last week. So unfortunately the site was down for two whole days, which is not a good thing in the land of web hosting, as uh, anyone who knows about web hosting will be able to vouch for. But uh, but on Friday, uh, Saturday, my time, Friday, your time perhaps, it was resolved when the uh, server was rebooted and we were able to move everything over to an, a different server on the EuroVPS uh, family, and it's this is now on a cloud server. So originally I was planning to get up here today and to basically tell you all that I'm looking for a new hosting company and a new uh, dedicated server, which is going to cost, uh, well, in the neighborhood of $300 a month to do it properly. But, uh, and that was spurred by the fact that it looked like this new server that we're on wasn't able to uh, to really meet the task of serving out all these very large videos, etc., that we're putting out on a regular basis now on CorporateReport.com with this podcast and my radio broadcast, etc., being 150 plus megabytes uh, downloads at a time. That's an awfully big strain on any server. So it looked like it was not going to handle the task. And the first few times that I tried to download a video from the new server, it just didn't work at all. It was extremely slow. It timed out on iTunes. It just was not working. But uh, then I was trying it today, and I downloaded the video faster than I ever have before. So I'm not sure if that was a momentary glitch. I'm not sure if it's uh, different times of day, maybe different peak uh, times to download. Maybe the server can be overwhelmed if a lot of people are downloading at the same time. But if I haven't put up anything in a day or two, the less traffic means that the, uh, the server will be better. So I don't know exactly how this is going to pan out. So over the course of the coming days and the next week, I'd like you out there to be watching the download loads and if you can give me feedback is it fast is it slow is it about the same uh, just give me feedback on what you see on your side with uh, not just one or two but if you download maybe the radio show every day and you can let me know over the course of a week and we'll decide what to do from then um, if this server works out fine and that's great it's still donated it's free of charge so we can continue to go with it if not we will have to look into getting other hosting uh, available and a lot of people have sent in their ideas one other thing that I want to uh, to say before we get into the episode uh, I know I got a lot of emails from people telling me that the website was down I do appreciate that but I would like to remind everyone if there's ever any problem with the server or anything that's going on that's unexpected the updates will be on Twitter 
at twitter.com slash Corbett Report. And for those of you who out there who don't use Twitter, who don't know about Twitter, you don't need to have a Twitter account to read my tweets. You can just go there to see if there's some sort of update or some explanation as to why the website is down. Anyway, that's a lot to say, and uh, and we'll just keep an eye on it for the next week, and we'll decide what to do after that, whether or not we need a new server. But on that note, once again, we have a ton of information to go through, so let's get to the podcast. Welcome to episode 235 of The Corbett Report. Meet Alexander Hamilton. One of the few things that everyone can agree on when discussing the legacy of Alexander Hamilton is that he was greatly reviled by a large number of his peers. On a warm morning in July 1804, a boat is rowed across the Hudson River to Lower Manhattan. In the boat lies Alexander Hamilton. He was a hero of the American Revolution, architect of the country's financial system, and under President Washington, the most powerful man in the United States. Wounded and bleeding, he is near death. Governor Morris is called upon to give the funeral oration. He is one of Hamilton's closest friends. He was vain, indiscreet, and opinionated. These things must be told to give a full measure of his character. But I must do it in such a manner as not to give offense to the mourners. This is not going to be easy. Morris, the man who had penned the words, We the People, is having severe writer's block. No founder had done more to shape the character of the country than Alexander Hamilton. Yet no founder was more controversial. The first point of his biography is that he was of illegitimate birth. Well, I'll have to pass over that one in some clever way. I'll mention, of course, his share in forming the Constitution. But then again, there's his domestic life. I have to say something about his wife, but... Um, then there's a small matter of infidelity that he foolishly published to the world. Ah, his administration of the country's finances. Yes, but many are still very hostile to it. I must somehow reconcile all this. Dueling. In principle, he was against dueling but he was killed in a duel. Not only is this subject impossible to write, but I shall still have to memorize it. The corpse is already putrid, and the funeral must take place tomorrow. Well, once again, that Alexander Hamilton was not exactly popular amongst his peers is not much in doubt, but really what does that tell us after all? That certainly there are not many people who would argue that one's likability is any great indicator of one's genius, and there have certainly been a great number of unlikable geniuses in the history of humanity. 
So perhaps it would be more fruitful to examine his ideas than merely to examine the uh, the whims and sentiments of his time that made him so unpopular with so many people. But at the very, very least, I think that clips like that and, and an understanding of Hamilton's unpopularity amongst certain sectors of uh, post-revolutionary American society at least goes somewhat to dispel the myth that is uh, often promulgated amongst uh, lazy speakers in this day and age that the Founding Fathers was some sort of monolithic group of people who all thought the same and all wrote these documents and attended these conventions in perfect harmony together, working towards the same ends with the same vision in mind. And that could not be further from the case, as I think helpfully uh, demonstrated by examining the uh, the life and the, the thoughts and the writings of Alexander Hamilton, for one, because he was such a uh, controversial figure in his day, and I think still would be if we actually did spend any amount of time examining the uh, political philosophy of the Founding Fathers instead of just conflating them all together. So that uh, we have, for example, in this day and age, we have people claiming that Ron Paul is founding father material in the Jeffersonian mold, which I think is triply wrong, because once again, it it makes it seem like there is a founding father type of mold to fit into, rather than a vast array of different people with very different ideas and agendas in mind. It also seems to indicate that uh, that being steadfast to the Constitution, as Ron Paul is, is some, some mark of the founding father material, when in fact a great number of founding fathers were very much against the Constitution that resulted from the convention and uh, and worked against its ratification. And of course, we have the anti-federalist papers and we have other people who were uh, expressing grave concerns about the, the Constitution. And we even have Jefferson, who Ron Paul is often explicitly compared to, who at the time was uh, said that no law or constitution should ever last more than 19 years, because if it does, then it is just another form of tyranny that's that's enforced by brute force rather than the rectitude of its argumentation. So certainly, I think we have. It would serve us well to understand some of the arguments that were going on in post-revolutionary American society about what America should be and what this revolution was all about, because it serves us a lot better to understand the different points that people were making back then, and perhaps from that to understand how America has become what it has become today. Which I th- I'm pretty sure that everyone of pretty much every conceivable political stripe and orientation can agree is not exactly the the best uh, conceivable outcome for the. Uh, the whole American revolutionary project, whatever one wants to think about that. So let's start examining Alexander Hamilton and some of his ideas today and see just how how greatly opposed they were by various uh, founding fathers. So we can look, for example, at Alexander Hamilton's argument that national debt is strength. It's a good thing for the, uh, the, the federal government, and it will bind people to that government and make it more able to to wield more power and centralize more authority in itself, which he thought was a good thing. Uh, Pursuant to those ends, he argued for a central bank, and in fact, he managed to succeed as Treasury Secretary in establishing the first central bank, really the, the forerunner, the progenitor, the granddaddy of the Federal Reserve in the first bank of the United States. He argued for the constitutionality of that bank, as opposed to people like Jefferson, who explicitly argued the anti, the unconstitutionality of that bank. Hamilton argued for it by uh, coming up with the doctrine of implied powers that, yes, well, the Constitution doesn't actually give the government the power to do this, but it's it's between the lines. You just have to kind of read into it, which started an entire uh, legal uh, jurisprudence tr- trend that the, uh, the judicial branch of government has picked up on and oft cited. So Hamilton, despite being quite a 
an outlier in that argument has become quite central to the, uh, the modern court's idea of what it is to be constitutional. Uh, he argued for an urban manufacturing industrial society, as opposed to people like Jefferson, who argued for an agricultural society of free and independent people who were able to earn their own living and survive on their on their own without this uh, finance capital system and, and the manufacturing industry that, uh, that Hamilton wanted to usher in. Uh, Hamilton argued during the Constitutional Convention, he put forward the argument for a lifetime presidency. In fact, he basically was arguing that George Washington, who was inevitably going to be the first president, should have that presidency for life. He should be basically king of America. And he thought that was a great thing and, and pursuant, of course, to his idea that we needed the strong central government with the uh, the national debt and the central bank. Um, he argued for pecuniary bounty, which was really the forerunner of corporate welfare. That's what we would call it in our day and age. But, uh, but he argued for pecuniary bounty. Uh, he argued for this, the establishment and the funding of a standing army, even during times of peace, which is something that so many of the founding fathers were explicitly opposed to because that was the real the 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 actual crux of the the issue when it came to how tyranny gets instituted in age after age it's because there is this army standing around that can be used to oppress the population they all argued against it hamilton was all for it we need that standing army to be a strong and good state in in the modern world um, I certainly uh, disagree with, with Hamilton on pretty much every point that he made uh, in that list and many of the other things that we won't be uh, really delving into today. Uh, very much opposed to Hamilton as opposed to, say, someone like Jefferson, who was very much in a very different mold and was opposed to Hamilton on almost every political point imaginable. And uh, Jefferson himself immortalized this in the entrance hall to Monticello, where he, he placed a statue of himself, uh, opposite a statue of uh, Alexander Hamilton so that they could be opposed in death as in life. Well, uh, if, I was a, if I was going to choose, I would certainly be choosing the Jeffersonian camp over the Hamiltonian camp. But again, we, today we're going to draw some of this out and take a look at some of Hamilton's ideas, which have been expanded on and, and turned into the American school of economics, etc. He was the progenitor and really the prototype for a lot of things that we see still going on today and still very much affecting us. So it will serve our interests to take a look at this character, dissect his ideas, and to try to tease out what, uh, what these arguments were really about, what the, they were at base, and then course, it's up to you to, uh, to really, uh, A, decide if this characterization is fair, and B, whether or not you uh, agree with him or with, with the other camp broadly defined. But before we get into all of that, I think once again it is important to understand something about Hamilton and where he came from and what motivated him as a human being, so I think some biography is certainly in order. So in order to, uh, to understand a little bit better who Hamilton was and what his roots were and how that affected and shaped his, uh, his life, we're going to be listening to a lecture lecture that was delivered back in 2008 by a professor, uh, John McGowan, who was uh, speaking at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and he delivered a lecture entitled James Madison Alexander Hamilton and the Founding of Our Nation. So we're going to listen to an excerpt of that speech talking about Alexander Hamilton and his biography. So there's Hamilton. It tells us something about Hamilton that we don't exactly know when he was born. Hamilton was born in the Caribbean island of St. Croix. He was illegitimate child. His father, though, stuck around until he was 14, so his mother and father had a fairly stable relationship. 
but they never married. His father was a Scotsman. His mother, it's not clear what his mother was. John Adams, who hated Hamilton, even though they actually were on the same side politically, uh, always referred to Hamilton as that Creole bastard. Um, and Hamilton, throughout his life, um, had to deal with this fact of his, not just humble, but really um, his uh, illegitimate origins. Hamilton, not surprisingly perhaps, his father left when he was 14, which meant that Hamilton had to go to work immediately to support his mother, who was abandoned at that point. Hamilton, through his life, attached himself to a series of strong father figures and, and um, with, with whom he had fairly tumultuous relationships. Hamilton was a difficult, th- uh, ornery guy. He was very sensitive, again, probably a part of his upbringing. And he, um, he first attached himself uh, to the man who he clerked for in St. Croix and um, was recognized immediately. The thing about Hamilton, besides his... Um, his ornery nature is his astounding, his astounding energy. I mean, basically, when he and Jefferson, when he, Hamilton starts fighting with Jefferson and Madison after the formation of the new government, the Washington government, Hamilton was a party of one. He had no allies. Everyone disliked him. And more than that, not many people understood what he was doing. Uh, There's no doubt that he had a kind of economic and financial knowledge that was simply beyond what anybody else in the colonies had. He created the American financial system. He really created American capitalism, and nobody really knew what he was doing. Um, But he carried it forth and got it put into place really through sheer energy. The amazing thing is these, these disputes in those days were carried out in pamphlets and newspapers, and Hamilton, first of all, nothing, no disagreement so slight would he let go by. So everything he would pounce on. And then he'd turn out these 15 or 20 page pamphlets overnight. You know? And then the next day, you know, sprung in the press would be this pamphlet. And the other thing about this in these days, um, as you might recall, these were all published anonymously. So you would publish them with a pen name. And of course, the famous pen name for the Federalist Papers was Publius. So a man of the public. And the Federalist Papers were written about, about 60% of them were written by Hamilton. About 37% of them were written by Madison. And then another three or four were written by John Jay. But they were published all under the same name. So in fact, it wasn't until many years later that scholars were able to divide out which ones were Hamilton's and which ones are Madison's. Um, so in the controversies, another pamphlet would burst upon the public under yet another pseudonym. And so Hamilton could pretend there were you know, thousands of people on his side because he just published under different names. But it was all Hamilton. And he didn't fool the insiders. Um, Jefferson and Madison could always tell Ham- Hamilton's uh, distinctive style. Um, so the, Hamilton came to New York. He was sent to New York by his... Um, sponsor, the man he had clerked for, for three years in St. Croix. And he came to New York and was almost immediately taken under the wing of one of the leading citizens in New York, a man named Philip Schuyler. Hamilton ended up marrying his daughter, classic Horatio Alger story, right? 
Um, and he went to Columbia College, uh, where he distinguished himself. And then came the Revolutionary War. And this is a picture of Hamilton as George Washington's uh, aide-de-camp. So Hamilton, with his instinct for finding strong father figures, and with his incredible intelligence and energy, basically became Washington's right-hand man. And that's how he becomes a figure of national renown. The other interesting thing about Hamilton was that, and again, maybe this is partly about where he came from, but Hamilton, unlike Jefferson and Madison, so Jefferson and Madison, I mean, there's a paradox here. Jefferson and Madison are the aristocrats who come from southern, plantation, southern, southern slave-holding plantations. Madison is the illegitimate son of a woman of questionable origins from the West Indies. But Madison and Jefferson are the natural Democrats. And Democrat there with a small d. They were the ones who believed in the equality of man and acted on that belief. They really uh, were comfortable with all different kinds of people um, and thought that all different kinds of people should have full access to government, full access to voting, etc. Hamilton was an aristocrat through and through. He lived by an aristocratic code of honor, and he was absolutely forthright in his contempt for democracy. He thought democracy, that's the way chaos lies. Um, and that he never for a moment thought that democracy um, was a suitable or desirable form of government. Among his aristocratic values was his deeply honed sense of honor. And among his aristocratic values was a sense that honor was very tied up with a certain kind of image of manhood and a certain kind of image of manhood that was connected to military valor. And so famously, completely unnecessarily, during the fighting at Yorktown, at the end of the Revolutionary War, Hamilton at one point simply said to Washington, I can't stand this anymore. I can't stand be, being behind the lines and playing this role. You need to give me a field command. And after he begged this of Washington, Washington finally did it. And then Hamilton immediately used his field command to endanger completely needlessly himself and his troops. Um, but then he was able for the rest of his life to proclaim himself a revolutionary war hero and someone who had really shown that he could stand up to the dangers of combat. Well, that is at the very least a little bit of a background about Hamilton and some snippets of his life. Of course, there's much more to be said, but that at least gives us an idea of the flavor of his life and what may have motivated and driven this man in his uh, quest to shape the future of the American Republic in the late 18th and very early 19th century. And uh, it's one thing to talk about his aristocratic demeanor and uh, aristocratic pretensions, but it's another thing to talk about the ways that they manifested in his life and the ways that they actually showed in his character. And there are some positive things to say about Hamilton and his character, as much as this episode is 
going to be focusing on things, points of disagreement, there are things to be said in his favor. For example, the fact that of the the founding fathers, as people like to talk about, Hamilton was certainly the most vociferous and the most, uh, the earliest and, and the most loud in his opposition, his complete and total opposition to slavery. And uh, he was very, very much in favor of its complete abolition and, uh, and more strongly so than any of the other founding fathers, many of whom were, of course, slave owners, and did in some forms uh, attempt to reach some sort of compromise that would have led to the abolition of slavery at some point, but Hamilton was quite quite adamant in uh, the immediate ending of that. So, so that, I think, is a point in his favor and one in which his ideas have definitely been on the side of the winning side of the argument of history. And then uh, another interesting insight into Hamilton's character and perhaps something positive that can be said about his aristocratic nature is that he certainly did seem to have some sense of integrity and uh, and honor for uh, for whatever that's worth and uh, and it manifested in some bizarre ways for example in the revelation of the most bizarre political sex scandal in American history and really the first one in the history of the American Republic which came, which dated back to 1791 and the beginning of his of Alexander Hamilton's uh, affair, adulterous affair with Maria Reynolds, which uh, the, there's a lot of history to that, and it was a very interesting story. I'll let you go and look into it if you're interested in that. But uh, but suffice it to say, when that uh, when he was retired as Treasury Secretary and was facing some political rivals uh, over some various issues that he was uh, campaigning for uh, in the late 19th 18th century. There were uh, it, it started to come to light the uh, the fact that he had carried on this affair with another man's wife, and had even paid for the paid the husband in effect to continue the uh, the affair. It was a type of blackmail, and Hamilton kind of played into it and paid into it, and uh, and it started to come to light. And contrary to all expectations of everybody, uh, Hamilton was the one to come out and publish the uh, the the correspondence that he carried on with this Maria Reynolds, and uh, and admitted completely to it and apologized to his wife for the affair in full public and uh, in the most public way possible, actually publishing it out in the open, which no one really expected, and uh, and. The reason that he did this was because the uh, rumor was starting to go around and people were starting to spread the rumor that he had been using funds in his position as treasury secretary. He had been using public funds to, to pay for and carry on this affair. And he basically was so absolutely incensed by the idea that people were spreading that lie about him that he said, well, look, of course, yes, I did have this affair, and here's the documents, and yes, we, we carried this on for a long time, and, and here it is, and I admit to it completely, but I used my own money. <laughs> so uh, so it's, uh, take that one, Bill Clinton. Uh, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Well, here's, uh, here's a polit- politician being accused of, of uh, carrying on this adult affair, and he says, absolutely, yes, it was me, but it wasn't the public money. So he did have these bizarre uh, principles that he did stand for, and he did stand by them, even in some cases where it basically meant political suicide of one form or another. Certainly, uh, the revelation of that affair and his complete ownership of it and admission, admission that he had done that, it kiboshed any chance that he would have had to have become president. So... Uh, 
So at any rate, that's just one of the interesting parts of Alexander Hamilton's life. And and there are other anecdotal evidence that he was uh, a man of morals of some sort. Uh, For example, um, there were people, friends of his, who gave contemporaneous accounts of uh, Alexander Hamilton not by being a rich man by any means, despite being, a, in fact, one of the most sought-after lawyers in New York, uh, a well-respected lawyer at the time. And uh, and despite of his renown and uh, the fact that his services were much in demand, he often let uh, he didn't really charge uh, very much, if anything at all, to many of the cases that he took on where he believed in the rightness of the per- person he was protecting. As someone in the background beats her futon, I'm sure you can hear that in the background, the lovely sounds of Japan. Anyway, so uh, Hamilton did not seem to personally enrich himself in his quest uh, for for his attempt to shape the American Republic. It wasn't about building up his own personal bank account so much as it was truly attempting to shape the Republic. And uh, he certainly had some ideas, and I certainly disagree with them, but not many people really question that these were done for um, bigger purposes than the enrichment of of his own uh, bank account. So what were those bigger purposes, and how did they really take uh, take shape, and what, what kinds of things did Alexander Hamilton inflict on the fledgling American Republic. Well, I think we have to take a look at his economic principles and the things that uh, that he managed to institute as Treasury Secretary, because those are things that have had a huge effect on shaping the American economic environment and still resonate with us down through the ages to today. So we're going to take a look at something that was a huge issue at the time that Alexander Hamilton came to power as the first Treasury Secretary and something that he had to deal with basically right away and that was the the debts of uh, of the American government itself and of the states and what his pretty radical proposal was to do with that and what motivated him to make that suggestion. Hamilton faces an enormous challenge. The United States, pure and simple, was bankrupt. We were flat broke. We hadn't paid a dime in years on this immense that we had amassed both at home and abroad to pay for the Revolutionary War. We owed money to our own army. We owed money to the officers of the army, many of whom had spent their entire fortunes equipping and taking care of the regiments that they had put together. We owed little old ladies who had given over supplies and horses to the army and gotten a piece of paper that said, we'll pay you for this. We couldn't pay them. So there was no confidence in the government. There was no confidence in the economy. And so we were in a a serious economic depression, and no one was certain how to get out of it. It would have been easy enough and almost predictable for a revolutionary government to repudiate that debt. But Hamilton felt that unless the debt was paid off, the United States would never be able to borrow money again, and that this would weaken it as a great power. Hamilton had developed this theory that unless you could establish the credit of the state, you could never have a mighty country. Public credit is earned by good faith. States, like individuals, which live up to their obligations, are respected and trusted. Those that don't are not trusted. Hamilton sees the debt not as a problem, but as an opportunity. He develops an audacious plan. 
he determines not only to pay off all the debt incurred by the federal government during the war, but also to take on the even larger debts incurred by the 13 states. The plan is called Assumption. Hamilton made a decision as the first Treasury Secretary that seems a bit bizarre. He actually wanted the federal government to take over, to assume all of the debt from the states. Now, what government official actually wants to take an enormous amount of debt and then add to that an even greater debt? Hamilton had a political agenda behind it. Most of the state's debt is held by wealthy and powerful men. Hamilton needs these leaders of society to support the new federal government. He felt that if the federal government assumed the debt from the states, that all of the creditors would feel that they had a direct financial stake in the survival of a still shaky new federal government, because that became the government that was going to pay them off. A national debt, if it's not excessive, will be a national blessing. It will be the powerful cement of our union. Leaders of the state governments immediately see what Hamilton is up to. He is attempting to bind the state's creditors to the federal government with hoops of gold. A public debt is a public curse. The state leaders block the Assumption Bill in Congress, and it appears to have no chance of passing. And Hamilton really despairs and thinks to himself and says at the time, if this collapses, I might as well just go home because this, this is it. If we can't take over these local debts, then it's like a vote of no confidence in me. This is the first symptom of a spirit that must either be killed or it will kill the Constitution. In 1790, New York City is a very small place, and Hamilton and Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson are neighbors. Jefferson has a more pressing concern than assumption, the location of the nation's capital, presently situated in New York City. He is eager to move the seat of government far from the foul air of the country's commercial center. New York City is a sewer containing all the depravities of human nature, a world apart from small towns and the countryside where crime is scarcely heard of, breaches of order are rare in society, if not refined, is rational, moral, and affectionate. The countryside that Jefferson and his allies favor for the nation's new capital would be a nice piece of empty land on the banks of the Potomac, not far from their plantations in Virginia. Hamilton wants to keep the capital where it is. He is so closely connected with New York City that his enemies call it Hamiltonopolis. One day, the two neighbors cross paths on the street. They agree to meet for dinner at Jefferson's house on Maiden Lane to talk out their differences. Jefferson invites a key congressman and fellow Virginian, James Madison. The result is one of the most famous meals in American history, the dinner table compromise. Hamilton seizes on the capital as a bargaining chip. If the Virginians will support federal assumption of the debt, he will agree to moving the capital south. He knows this deal will not endear him to his fellow New Yorkers. I think this goes back again to Hamilton the outsider. 
he isn't from New York. He's, he's a West Indian. And so he's willing to sacrifice state and local interests for the broader national purpose, a strong United States. If that meant sacrificing New York, he'd do it. And he did it. With assumption, Hamilton lays the foundation for the credit of the United States, the ability to borrow at home and abroad. In time, this will bring about the prosperity that allows the democratic experiment to flourish. And so we have the very first Secretary of the Treasury of the United States forming what would, I guess, be the president, and certainly uh, nothing that would be out of place in the current day and age with the idea that a national debt, if not excessive, would in fact be a national treasure. And uh, so we have uh, him not only wanting to take on and, and pay in full the, the debts of the, the national government, which there were people like Madison and others saying that uh, there were ways around that or that they could pay less or they could pay later or they could pay lower interest rates, etc. But uh, Hamilton would have none of it. No, unless we pay it all, we'll never be able to establish the good faith and credit of the United States government, which is an argument in one hand. But of course, uh, part the real underlying ideology of this is that if you are the debtor, that means that you are in a way binding the debtees to you and and they have a vested interest in making sure that you continue. So once you put your stake in something, uh, you, you want to make sure that it's able to pay you back. So it binds the rich moneyed finance capital elites to the nation itself, which is a great thing because it makes the federal government that much stronger. And uh, also similarly, by assuming the states, state government's individual debts, that also binds the states even more closely to the federal government and gives the federal government ultimately in the end more power to say what the uh, states can and can't do because they are in debt to the federal government because it assumed their debts. So a very crafty, very insidious plan. I mean, it, certainly there was there is the touch of the evil genius about Hamilton with the emphasis on evil, but, uh, but genius nonetheless. And it was uh, a, a very interesting plan and it did work in the sense that I think he wanted it to work because certainly A, it did establish the good faith and credit of the American government and made it uh, a viable in the international markets, but also perhaps more importantly, did establish that centralized government power that the, uh, the people were never really and totally able to claw, claw back. And uh, so much of what the, the people had fought for ended up getting smushed in the very first, very first years after the, uh, the, the revolution ended. So much was really decided on in those critical first few years. And another thing that uh, that Hamilton decided to advocate for as a way of establishing the the sound soundness of the American economy and the American credit system was the establishment of a government-owned government-owned central bank. In 1790, less than three years after the Constitution had been signed, the money changers struck again. The newly appointed first Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton proposed a bill to the Congress calling for a new privately owned central bank. Coincidentally, that was the very year that Amschel Rothschild made his pronouncement from his flagship bank in Frankfurt. Let me issue and control a nation's money, and I care not who writes the laws. Alexander Hamilton was a tool of the international bankers, and he wanted to create the U.S. Bank, the BUS, or the Bank of the United States, and did so. Interestingly, one of Hamilton's first jobs after graduating from law school in 1782 was as an aide to Robert Morris, 
the head of the Bank of North America. In fact, the year before, Hamilton had written Morris a letter saying, A national debt, if it is not excessive, will be to us a national blessing. A blessing to whom? After a year of intense debate, in 1791, Congress passed the bill and gave it a 20-year charter. The new bank was to be called the First Bank of the United States, or BUS. Here we are in front of the First Bank of the United States in Philadelphia. The bank was given a monopoly on printing U.S. currency, even though 80% of its stock would be held by private investors. The other 20% would be purchased by the U.S. government. But the reason was not to give the government a piece of the action. It was to provide the capital for the other 80% owners. As with the old Bank of North America and the Bank of England before that, the stockholders never paid the full amount for their shares. The U.S. government put up their initial $2 million in cash. Then the bank, through the old magic of fractional reserve lending, made loans to its charter investors so they could come up with the remaining $8 million of capital needed for this risk-free investment. Like the Bank of England, the name of the Bank of the United States was deliberately chosen to hide the fact that it was privately controlled. And like the Bank of England, the names of the investors in the bank were never revealed. Many years later, it was a common saying that the Rothschilds were the power behind the old bank of the United States. The bank was sold to Congress as a way to bring stability to the banking system and eliminate inflation. So what happened? Over the first five years, the U.S. government borrowed $8.2 million from the Bank of the United States. In the same five-year period, prices rose by 72%. Jefferson, as the new Secretary of State, watched the borrowing with sadness and frustration, unable to stop it. I wish it were possible to obtain a single amendment to our Constitution, taking from the federal government the power of borrowing. Millions of Americans feel the same way today. They watch in helpless frustration as the federal government borrows the American economy into oblivion. So, although it was called the First Bank of the United States, it was not the first attempt at a privately owned central bank in this country. As with the Bank of North America, the government put up most of the cash to get this private bank going, then the bankers loaned the money to each other to buy the remaining stock in the bank. It was a scam, plain and simple, and they wouldn't be able to get away with it for long. And so it was that Hamilton and the banksters were able to successfully transplant the Bank of England in all but name to the American colonies under the guise of the Bank of the United States, the first Bank of the United States. There's a lot to be said about that, including the way that he was that was argued for. And as I mentioned, this uh, echoes down the ages in the halls of jurisprudence down to today, where his uh, uh, Hamilton's argument that, yeah, the Constitution doesn't say that Congress can set up a central bank, but it's uh, it's kind of implied because, well, in order to do what the Constitution says Congress has to do, a central bank would be helpful. So therefore, Congress has the power. 
power to set up a central bank. And that uh, that idea of implied powers in the Constitution, as I say, echoes down to today and is still oft-cited in basically uh, federal Supreme Court decisions where they want to say that the government can basically do whatever it wants, even if it's not in the Constitution. So that is by now, unfortunately, well-established in jurisprudence. And uh, not only the way that that was argued for, but also the fact that the central bank was established was also important. And uh, so this goes to show some of the very, very big things that Hamilton did during his time as Treasury Secretary. Not only assumption, assuming the debt, uh, the national debt and the debts of the states in order to make the central government itself more powerful, and not only the establishment of the central bank, but of course also arguing for the Constitution, arguing against the Bill of Rights. Uh, he actually argued against the idea of a Bill of Rights, uh, which of course people, everyone else, Jefferson and the like, were we're arguing strenuously, what is the point of this constitution if it doesn't guarantee certain rights? Um, well, he actually argued against that, uh, bizarrely enough. He was uh, in favor of such things as pecuniary benefits, the, which we would identify today as corporate welfare, uh, high tariffs. Uh, all of these planks of his economic platform specifically became something which developed into the so-called American School of Economics. And uh, this is uh, something that we'll have to examine perhaps more in, in a different episode. But, but broadly speaking, this involves a lot of things that look very similar to uh, British mercantilism. So basically, Hamilton, in many respects, brought the British mercantilist system over to the shores of America. And because the Americans were nominally in charge of this, suddenly it was okay. And uh, he's really the progenitor or the forerunner to what would become uh, to be identified as the American school of economics. And that leads down to today through Keynesianism and uh, basically the idea of, you know, the New Deal and, and the government coming in, especially to to build up infrastructure and things. So we see today uh, certain analysts going crazy for FDR and saying he's the savior. And, and what we need today is a government to step in and start creating maglev train networks and things like this. This is, this is why those people argue so strenuously for that. It goes back to Hamilton and his ideas and uh, the failure, the inherent failure that his ideas were. But I suppose let's not do the disservice of just making that statement. Let's examine the effect of uh, Hamilton's policies and what really became of them and we'll do that from, from the two perspectives. We'll give him the benefit of uh, listening to someone who's in his favor and believes that what he did was important and good, and then we'll listen to the refutation of that. So first we'll start with his biographer making the case for Hamilton and his policies, and how they continue to affect us today in a positive way by shaping the world that we've come into, or something along those lines. So let's listen to Ron Chernow talking about Alexander Hamilton and his legacy. You write, Alexander Hamilton was the messenger from a future that we now inhabit. What do you mean by that? Well, the America that we resemble today um, much more nearly resembles Hamilton's vision. Jefferson's vision looks as poetic and uh, as alluring as ever. It just doesn't in any way correspond to the country that uh, we inhabit. So that I think that one reason, among others, why Hamilton was, was villainized uh, was that he was um, an advocate of things like banks and stock exchanges, corporations, manufacturing, at a time when that seemed like very scary futuristic stuff. So he was very much ahead of his time. We've caught up with him so much in the American uh, uh, landscape that we today take uh, for granted. Mm -hmm. It was very new and far-sighted and hence unsettling stuff back in the late 18th century. Mike Wallace, let me push you a little bit, Ron. Sure. Mike Wallace, quote, 
to claim that Hamilton's financial program saved the country from becoming a backward banana republic is untenable. The prosperity of the 1790s and early 1800s was the result not of Hamiltonian wizardry, but of the outbreak of the Napoleonic Wars in 1793, which generated a massive European demand for neutral America's grain and of England's burgeoning industrialization, which generated a massive demand for American cotton, close quote. In other words, Alexander Hamilton was saying some of the right things and doing some of the right things, yeah. but this was bound to become a great, big, prosperous commercial country, Hamilton or no Hamilton. How do you answer that? Well, I think it probably would have happened, but I think that Hamilton accelerated it. Let me give you an example. We talked about the, uh, the, the central bank. One of the reasons Hamilton wanted to uh, have uh, what was the forerunner of the Federal Reserve Board. We had no uniform national currencies. Different states uh, produced uh, their own notes. We had a lot of foreign coins washing around uh, in, in the country. This provided us with a uniform national currency. Um, it actually provided us with liquid capital for investment at the time when we were very rich in land and very rich uh, in labor. So I think Mike Wallace is right that there was an overall tone, there was an overall economic backdrop that was certainly uh, stimulative. But um, I think that because Hamilton early on established American credit, we were able to, to borrow. In fact, um, by the time that Hamilton left office after five years, we had gone from the global deadbeat in world finance to a country that got interest rates as low as that of any other sovereign borrower in the world. I'm not really sure that there's a parallel. All right, so the successes of the early American economy can't exactly be attributed to Hamilton, but but he sped things along, honest. Well, at the very, very least, that's what defenders of Hamilton would have us believe. Well, how about the other side of that debate? And for the refutation, let's turn to one of Hamilton's most vociferous opponents in this day and age. Uh, his name is Thomas de Lorenzio, and he wrote a book on Hamilton's curse. And uh, that's opposed to Hamilton's blessing. I'll let you look into the history of that for what that's really referring to. But at any rate, here's Thomas DeLorenzio talking about uh, Hamilton's curse and the, the real legacy of Alexander Hamilton in the American economy. And, uh, but the real, the real story about central banking, and I'm going to use the American example, but it's really based also on the European example of central banking, is central bank always was just another special interest gimmick. Uh, it never had anything to do in America with uh, the pretense of serving the public interest. Uh, uh, although that's the myth, that's the, the legend that we're all taught. Go to any university library in America and pick up a textbook on uh, macroeconomics or monetary theory and look up what they say about the purpose of central banking, the purpose of the Fed. It's always to stabilize the economy, to stabilize prices, uh, in the public interest. Uh, the Fed itself says this all the time. But uh, the truth about the origins, the very origins of it, was that the, the promote proponents of central banking in America really wanted to bring the Bank of England to America. Uh, they, 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 uh, there are a group of men in American uh, history who admired the, uh, the British mercantilist system and the mercantilist systems of other European countries. And while they were on the paying end of that British mercantilist system as colonists, they didn't like it much. It wasn't a very good deal to be on the paying end of, of uh, uh, you know, as colonists. But they had this idea that if you're on the, the collecting end, that's not a bad deal. And so as I, as I tell people that uh, the ideology of Alexander Hamilton and the other proponents of central banking 
was that uh, it's good to be the king, as Mel Brooks uh, said in one of his movies where he portrayed the king of France. Uh, it's good to be the king. So they essentially wanted to bring the British mercantilist system here, uh, or here, to, to America, uh, as long as they could be in charge. They understood fully well that it was rotten and corrupt and, and, and economically destabilizing to them uh, when they were victims of it, but they wanted to be the kings. And Murray Rothbard writes about this in his uh, little book, the, uh, the Mystery of Banking. And he talks about these men, Hamilton and the other uh, American founders of central banking. What is it that they wanted? Why did they want a central bank, the Bank of the United States? And here's what Rothbard said. He, well, to reimpose in the United States a system of mercantilism and big government similar to that in Great Britain against which the colonists had rebelled. The object was to have a strong central government, particularly a strong president or king as chief executive, built up by the high taxes and heavy public debt. The strong government was to impose high tariffs to subsidize domestic manufacturers, develop a big navy to open up and subsidize foreign markets for American exports, and launch a massive system of internal public works. In short, the United States was to have a British system without Great Britain. And, and that is certainly true. Uh, Jefferson and his uh, associates smoked out the Federalists, uh, the Nationalists, as they were also called. There was a, a senator from the state of Virginia named John Taylor who, uh, who listened to this, who listened to these pleas for a central bank, and he said this, uh, what was it that drove our forefathers to this country? Was it not the ecclesiastical core and perpetual monopolies of England and Scotland? Shall we suffer the same evils in this country? So th these men understood what was up here. They understood what was afoot. They wanted a central bank to essentially subsidize uh, politically connected businesses for the most part. And uh, that's where Hamilton comes in. One of the uh, wealthiest businessmen of the time was a man named Robert Morris from Philadelphia. And he championed uh, the, uh, the creation of a central bank. And there was the, the actual first central bank in America was the Bank of North America. And it was deliberately modeled after the Bank of England. And here's what Rothbard says about this bank. He says, it, quote, it graciously agreed to lend most of its newly created money to the federal government, and the hapless taxpayers would have to pay the bank principal and interest. And it was given a monopoly on currency issue, but the, uh, the currency was so unreliable that the bank was privatized. And so from the very beginning of the American Republic, there was an attempt to create a, a Bank of England for America. Uh, but they didn't give up. Uh, that only lasted a year. They didn't give up. Uh, Hamilton himself uh, it was the one who first proposed a constitutional convention to throw out the original American Constitution. It was called the Articles of Confederation and to uh, put a new one in. And the new one, uh, one of the keystones of the new one, they hoped would be a central bank. Uh, and here's again what Rothbard said, a critical part of this program, the U.S. Constitution, in the eyes of uh, the men who are known as nationalists, uh, was put through in 1791, after the Constitution was adopted, by their leader, Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, a disciple of Robert Morris. Hamilton put through Congress the first bank of the United States, modeled after the old Bank of North America, whose longtime president and former business partner of Robert Morris, Thomas Willing, was made president of the new bank. And so Robert Morris got his man, Robert Willing, to be the president of this bank. And, uh, and so we got this bank, and what did it do? 
Here's what Murray Rothbard says was the effects of this first central bank. It issued millions of dollars in paper money and demand deposits, pyramiding on top of $2 million in specie. The, uh, the bank invested heavily in the U.S. government, and the result of the outpouring of credit and paper money by the new bank of the United States was an increase in prices of 72% from 1791 to 1796, the first five years, 72% inflation. And it was set up so that it would have a 20-year charter, and after 20 years of this, uh, they, the U.S. Congress did not renew the charter. So we were central bankless for a while. Well, that is the other side of the story, and uh, there is still a lot to be said about Hamilton. Uh, there is a lot that he wrote and a lot that he talked about. I will, of course, leave you to start exploring Alexander Hamilton in greater length and depth to find out what else he was involved in and why it's important. But let's let's wrap this up. Let's summarize what we're talking about today by bringing it back to one of the core issues that Hamilton represents, which is really the idea of a strong central federal government, which is something that was very much the aim of what he was uh, trying to get at. And uh, we can speculate, I suppose, on, on what the ultimate motivation for that was, but uh, whatever it was, the underlying philosophy of that is absolutely and totally antithetical to this this podcast and all of the work that I'm doing, the idea of the strong centralized government, which was what so many of the founding fathers were warning against, and the idea of this uh, federal government turning into a new type of tyranny has been expressly and undoubtedly realized in our current era, certainly in this era of the Department of Homeland Security, etc. So it's important to get to the meat and potatoes, the real underlying philosophy of what Hamilton and the other big government manna from heaven raining down the blessings from on high type people who are advocating for that type of system, what really is behind them, what their philosophy is, and why it is wrong, why we are opposed to it. So in order to articulate that, let's turn to another uh, Hamiltonian uh, op opposition, uh, someone who's opposed to Hamilton, and we're going to listen to a speech by Jack Chambliss that is also under the uh, rubric of the curse of Alexander Hamilton, which uh, re uh, is echoed in Thomas DeLorenzio's book, but this is a speech by Jack Chambliss talking about this, a very interesting speech. I would recommend you watch the whole thing. Of course, as always, the entire uh, notes for this, uh, the, the link to this, and all of the other videos will be in the documentation section for this podcast. Podcast. But let's listen to a little bit of the underlying philosophy of these central government power advocates and why it is wrong. We must have a government of more power, said Alexander Hamilton to George Washington. Towards that end, as Secretary of the Treasury, he envisioned, quote, a living constitution where the federal government could ignore the sovereignty of the states in order to promote, quote, the public good. Hamilton shared in the philosophy of Jacques Rousseau. Jacques Rousseau believed that there existed a general will among the masses. And, and arrogantly, Rousseau and Hamilton believed that even if the, the, the common man did not understand what the general will was, the ruling elite did know what the general will was. And it was up to the ruling elite to help us, understand, help us articulate the general will to, ach to achieve the objectives that we could not articulate. If you read Alexander, Alexander Hamilton's writings, hundreds of times he uses the phrases, 
the public good, the public interest, the public happiness, the welfare of the community, and more. In seeking to create an expansive mercantilist political economy, Hamilton famously campaigned for a national bank, subsidies for businesses, uh, protective tariffs for infant industries, and more, arguing that they were indeed, in, indeed constitutional because, according to Hamilton, and I'm quoting, there are implied as well as expressed powers in the Constitution, and that the former are as effectually delegated as the latter. This was an amazing interpretation of the Constitution to argue in essence that whatever the Constitution did not have in it, it was implied that the government could implement those policies and those laws. Why have a Constitution if we're going to have a Constitution that is living and is one of implied powers? It's like having uh, the rules of poker be implied in living. Every now and then, if I'm losing, a, a, a pair of deuces can beat a full house. <laughs> well, once again, I'm not here to make your mind up for you, and I'm not here to tell you what to think. I will just exhort you to go and start exploring some of these issues for yourself and come to your own conclusions. But I think, at the very least, a better exploration of Alexander Hamilton can give us that microcosm from which we can see the macrocosm of the issues as they present themselves to us in our own day and age, and can help us to better understand the types of people who are arguing for the American School of Economics and strong central governments and New, de New Deal economics and uh, the idea of this presidential dictator, monarch, president for life that Hamilton argued for, etc., etc. So much of it goes back to the very first years after the American Revolution, and in so many revolutions, we always see what happens in the immediate aftermath is really what sets the direction. And unfortunately, I think a lot of the ideas and ideals that the American revolutionaries were fighting for were very quickly undermined in the Washington's presidency uh, with Hamilton as his Treasury Secretary. And uh, there's a lot more to be said and explored in that particular era, but for today, we'll leave it there. So, once again, I will exhort you to go and do your own research on these matters, and I hope that you'll use the show notes for today's episode to do so. Once again, I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and I'm once again asking you to uh, give me some feedback on how the new servers are working for the website, and we will decide what to do in terms of securing a new server or continuing with this one after that. And I'd also like to remind you that this is a listener-supported podcast, so if you do like what you hear and you do find it valuable, I very much appreciate contributions. You can sign up to become a subscriber through the corbettreport.com support to my newsletter, which comes out on a weekly basis. You can also buy DVDs that uh, get, get you this information and also help to support the Corbett Report. And on that note, I'm also looking at a new way of helping to support the Corbett Report. Uh, right now, I can only accept PayPal payments, but that might change in the very near future. So I will let you know about that on the radio show and here on the podcast when I know more myself. But on that note, that's all for today. I'm your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again next week for another edition of the Corbett Report. Devastation reigned and our man saw his future drip Dripping down the drain Put a pencil to his temple Connected it to his brain And he wrote his first refrain A testament to his pain Well the word got around They said this kid is insane man Took up a collection just to send him to the mainland Get your education Don't forget from whence you came And the world is gonna know your name What's your name man? Alexander Hamilton his name is Alexander Hamilton 
And there's a million things he hasn't done But just you wait 